Welcome to Meaningful Judaism, where we try to answer why we do what we do in Jewish life. Meaningful Judaism is a project of Aleph Beta Labs, and I'm your host, Imu Shalev. This week, we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of focusing in on one mitzvah and searching for its meaning, we're going to take a step back and have a frank conversation in which we question the entire premise of this podcast. I've always been on a quest to understand the meaning behind our various rituals and practices in Judaism, but when I studied in yeshiva, the pushback that I got, explicitly or merely implied, is that the pursuit of meaning in mitzvos is not something that serious people do. I remember having a heated debate with one of the top students at my yeshiva who looked at me with a bit of pity. He said something like, Emu, come on. We can't know the mind of God. We can't know his reasoning. And it's dangerous to pursue the meaning behind a mitzvah because it weakens the main reason we keep any mitzvot, our loyalty to God. That's why we have chukim. We can be commanded the strangest of mitzvot that seem to have no reason at all, and we keep them because they're God's commands. And hearing him, I felt kind of embarrassed. Like maybe if I was searching for the meaning behind mitzvot, it meant my emuna, my belief in God, wasn't strong enough. And here's a challenge that I find even more threatening. The meanings behind the mitzvot that we've been uncovering throughout our studies of the Torah text, they don't match up with what I learned in day school, what I learned in yeshiva, what I see in my shul. So what do I do with that? Am I saying that the traditional interpretations of mitzvot are mistaken? Everyone's been getting it wrong until, thank God, I came along to enlighten them? So I sat down with Aleph Beta lead scholar and my Rebbe, Rabbi David Foreman, to honestly consider these challenges, and I'm pretty glad I did. I'm going to play that conversation for you now. Rabbi Foreman and I start off with that first challenge. Where do we get off searching for the meaning behind mitzvot in the first place? All right, here it goes. Welcome, Rabbi Foreman, to Meaningful Judaism. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you, and I'm going to dive right in with my first question. Where do we get off dedicating an entire podcast to researching the meaning behind laws? Isn't it better to simply observe the laws because they're God's laws? What would you say to that? Yeah, so I honestly think that having a mitzvah that you have no understanding of and saying, you know, I'm going to commit to doing that because God asked that of me. There's meaning in that for all sorts of reasons. You know, one of the things we talk about in a video that we have in Parshas Vayakel, which always resonates with me, is the notion that God made a world for us, and in doing so, he observed the laws. And those are the laws of physics and the inverse square law of gravity and Newton's three laws of thermodynamics and Einstein's special theory of relativity. And Richard Feynman says calculus is the language that God speaks. It, you know, you really should learn it if you want to know God's language. In a very real way, God is the very first observer of laws. Uh, it's just so you know, this is the second time Ray Foreman this week has shamed me for not knowing calculus. <laughs> Literally the second time. <laughs> I didn't do very well in calculus either. But there's this notion that God was the very first keeper of laws. The laws were not godly laws, but human laws in the sense that these are the laws that's necessary for human life to come to existence in the universe. And God's the one who observes them out of love, not because they're meaningful to him, not because he's finding any great inspiration of them, but because this is what it takes to make an environment that works for your beloved. And at some level, I think there's a very, very deep sense of meaning that even before we get to anything fancy, even before we have this great mind-blowing insight in the laws of Tzitzah, or the laws of Shabbos, or the laws of Nidr, any of these other laws, but just to say that I'm reciprocating what my creator did for me, 
right? My creator was the first observer of laws and did so out of love for another. I too want to make a place for my beloved in my world. I want to make a place for God in my world. And that requires me to observe certain laws to make God feel comfortable hanging out with me. Mm -hmm. That's the way I give myself in love to God. And that's meaningful. The amount of meaning that comes from doing something out of love to make your creator at home in your world is, is full of richness and meaning. And what we're doing here, I think, is an extension of that, which is mm -hmm. we can begin to get some insights and tendrils of understanding into, you know, what are some of the things that might lie behind these things. And so, therefore, I would, you know, sort of encourage you as you go forward in this podcast to be sort of aware of shades of gray and meaning. It's not just black and white. It's not like, hey, this was meaningless and crazy, and now it's full of meaning and richness. No, it starts off being meaningful in different ways. Ultimately, to say that you can know the mind of another with a human being is arrogant, all the more so it is with God. Like, you don't know. Like, if I would say, Emu, what's in your head right now? What are you really thinking? What do you really think of me? What do you really think of your producer, Beth? I don't really know. I can surmise based upon my conversation, but all I have are external signs. I have a direct link into your internal experience. All the more so, we have no direct link into God's internal experience and what God's mind really is. The best we can do is work our way off of evidence. So I think the, the watchword is humility here. As long as we are not arrogant, as long as you don't come out of there and say, Shelfer meant nothing to you before, right? But now it means everything because we found this, that's wrong. It's wrong in two ways. It's wrong because it didn't mean nothing before, and it's not like now it means everything. It didn't mean nothing before because it's okay for you to listen to the shofar as an act of love and to say, God, I'm here. You asked me to do this. This is meaningful. And also, even afterwards, even after your mind is blown and you see all of this richness, you still haven't arrived at the meaning. It's a meaning in the mitzvah. It is the beginning of meaning in it. You know, it's interesting because Tamea mitzvahs, trying to understand the meaning of mitzvahs, is something which has basis in our tradition. Many commentators before us have tried to do this long before Aleph Beta came into the world. One of the most famous is the Chinuch himself, an unknown author who wrote a book for his child called Sefer HaChinuch, the Book of Education, to try to give him some sort of window into mitzvahs. What he does is not just tell him about the basics of the laws, but tells him about some of the meaning behind the laws. But the language which he uses is really interesting. I was kind of meditating on that this morning, just before this podcast. The language that he always uses to describe meaning in mitzvahs is misharshei ha-mitzvazu, right? Which in English would translate to, from the roots of this mitzvah are the following. And then he would suggest something. But what he's suggesting is that this is one of the roots of this mitzvah. And I would suggest that humbly, we should adopt that kind of perspective of mm -hmm. the Chinuch here. We're trying to uncover some of the roots of this mitzvah and some of the meaning which animates it. And when you discover a root, it's a very exciting thing. But I think humility is in order. Everything which we found in this podcast, as mind-blowing as it is, is probably just a crumb in the larger cake of the meaning of that mitzvah. So let me let me push back just a little bit because I'm I'm between the two of us I'm far more of an extremist. The way I would have answered that question, you know, isn't it fraught to seek out Tommy Mitzvos? I would have said, "What do you want from me? I'm I, 
it wasn't really seeking it out, but once I'm looking at the Bible, I realize that Tamah Mitzvahs are all over the place. Like the reason behind the laws, yeah, they may not be, you know, explicit like, hey, over here, this is the reason. But with, you know, an intertextual parallel here and a chiasm over there, you start to see these beautiful, subtle, rich resonances and all kinds of meaning that emerges. It doesn't feel like God was trying to test you and, and put the meaning there, but then wanted you really not to look for it. It, it feels like he's inviting you to look for it. But once you start to see that, once you start to glimpse that the meaning is there, then I don't know, I have been guilty of feeling at many times at my career in Aleph Beta that isn't it chaval, isn't it a tragedy that not everybody knows this? What I heard you saying is it was meaningful before and don't get too enamored by the meaning. But I don't know, I get pretty enamored by the meaning. Like once I see that the meaning is there, right? I, I, I do feel like climbing from the rooftops and say, you know, I've been guilty at times of, of and I, I don't believe this anymore, but saying, hey, everybody, you've been practicing Shavuos wrong. You got Shavuos wrong. We've been getting, we're getting Rosh Hashanah wrong. It's the wrong Rosh Hashanah. I now know the right way because I studied with Rabbi Foreman. So I would say that the meaning of these mitzvahs is about the God of life. And you're talking to me about the God of good and evil, right? So the God of good and evil would say, you've got Rosh Hashanah wrong. And I would say the God of life would say, you got a little bit of the pulsating meaning of Rosh Hashanah just in connecting to the mitzvah at its most basic sense, but there's so much more vibrancy there. I wouldn't say that you've gotten Shavuos wrong. I would just shift the paradigm into life. There's so much more life to suck out of Shavuos than what you're aware of. Let me show you some things. There's so much more life to suck out of your Rosh Hashanah. Let me show you some things. All right, so I'm mindful of the fact that this may be the first time you're hearing about the God of life and the God of good and evil. Rabbi Foreman's alluding to some mind-blowing Torah that he and I have learned together. This is actually a framework that we keep coming back to in our own Chavrusa, but if it's new to you, don't worry. In just another minute, he's going to explain what these terms mean and where they come from. So sit tight. And I, too, have that feeling of shouting from the rooftops. I'll admit it, right? I vividly remember when you and I had stumbled upon that meaning in Rosh Hashanah. And it was such a different way of seeing things. And I remember I had just made this Aleph Beta video with you, and thousands of people were due to see it. So, you know, if you interviewed me, you might say, well, Foreman, isn't that enough for you? You've made your video. It's out there on the internet. It's available for the whole world. So just go and do the next thing with your life. But I couldn't do that. Here I was at a family gathering with all my nephews gathered around and like I had to turn to the people around the table and it's like guys what do you think Zichron Trua means? What do you think it means that we remember the Trua? Does that, and it's like a bunch of blank faces from all of my nephews who God bless their souls are yeshiva educated they're all in the finest yeshiva they're rabbinical students and it's like nobody ever really thought of that and I'm thinking like I should just really stop this whole thing right now there's a Sheva Brachas going on and people are talking about Sheva Brachas and all that I really felt like just getting out the front of the room it's like, I'm sorry, I really just have to cancel this whole celebration. Rosh Hashanah is right around the corner. <laughs> I really need to share something with all of you. There, <laughs> I mean, that's how I felt. So I, I totally understand that, that, that feeling. I just think that it's more helpful to come from the God of life perspective than the God of good and evil perspective. And to say that, look, you know, you don't have to understand the biblical roots for this to be the beginnings of a life giving to you. But it can be more and more life-giving the more and more you understand and the more you mind those understandings. Are you saying that the reason to focus on the, this God of life versus God of good and evil thing, is that is that because it's it's more pleasant to do that? Is that because Rabbi Foreman thinks that better to, you know, 
be a nice guy than to be a firebrand? You know, where, where do you get that approach from? I mean, it has to do, and I would refer people to our podcast, The Book Like No Other, which we talked about the two trees, these two trees, the tree of knowledge, good and evil, and the tree of life. And what we suggest in that podcast is that there's two approaches to take to Torah. One approach is a tree of knowledge, a good and evil approach. Tree of knowledge, good and evil approach basically says that there is something that the Torah gives me, and it gives me guidance as to how to live my life in the world. And one way to think of that guidance is that there's a right way to do things and there's a wrong way to do things. And there's good and there's evil. And we all have certain feelings of what good and bad might mean, but we all kind of sense that we could use some help in figuring out what good and bad are. And so the Torah gives us that help and says, here's a code of morality, and that's a great gift. But it's not the only reason why we learn Torah, to know what to do. Ask any yeshiva student, and they'll tell you there's another reason why they learn Torah. It's not the reason why you would learn it 24 hours a day. It's not the reason why you'd wake up in the morning and the first thing on your lips would be Torah. It's not the reason why you would go to sleep and the last thing on your lips would be Torah. It's not the reason why the Shema itself tells you to learn Torah. The Shema tells you the reason to learn Torah. It's because, You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And what does that mean? It means, That those laws that I command you today, what is the most logical end of that sentence? If I feed that to chat GPT, and I ask that to just predict the next words based on context, well, I say they're laws. And there are laws that I command you today. If there's a commander and he's God and he gives you these laws, what should you do with laws that you're commanded to? Obey. The answer would obviously be obey. You should obey those laws, but that's not the end of the sentence. Those laws that I command you today, they should be on your heart. What an incredible thing to say about laws. Laws should be on your heart. God says, you should have an emotional relationship to those laws. They shouldn't matter to you. There are the love letters that I give you. Of course you should obey them. We're not talking about whether you should obey them or not. It's actually a very interesting point to think about, right? Imagine, you know, Congress passes a few laws. <laughs> the very next thing we all do is we all go to our communal centers and into our schools and we place the laws on our heart. Yeah, right? It's absurd. You don't do that, right? You don't no do that with laws. laws. You obey the laws. And obey has an emotional relationship with laws. But if it's God and you love God with all of your heart, with all your soul, what does love entail? What does it mean you would do with a God that you love? You can't touch him. You can't feel him. You would want to give this God a hug. All you can do is, you know, the analogy I sometimes give is imagine you were fighting in Normandy and you were in love with a nurse back in Iowa. And, you know, you can't touch her. You can't give her a hug. But if she wrote you a letter, what would you do with that letter? You would take that letter, you would hold it close to your heart. It would be the symbol that you have of your beloved. Every time you fight and go into another hedgerow, throw a grenade ahead, not knowing if you're going to live and die the next day, you'd have that letter close to your heart. And that's what God says. These laws that I command you today, I don't want you to just relate to them as commands. You have to relate to them as things that give you life. They literally give you the courage and the strength and the happiness and the sense of beauty and the sense of meaning to go on because you're in love, right? And therefore, you should teach them because all teaching is is overflowing, right? If I know something and I want to shout it from the rooftops, then I am a teacher. And therefore, and you should talk about them like a love-struck person. The same way a love-struck person wakes up and talks about their beloved, you should talk about them at home. You should talk about them on the road. These laws should sort of suffuse your mind. And so what happens is that there's, whole, there's all this meaning in Torah, and we 
have to also live in a world of good and evil. So we have this thing called halacha, which tries to take these commands and actually give us a path through life to actualize these commands. So halacha comes to the Shema and says, hmm, how are we going to take this ideal of love, this passionate ideal of love, and allow people in a mundane world to touch that idea every single day? I know a person in love would just wake up in the morning and talk Torah and go to sleep talking Torah. You should take a little piece of Torah and you should say it in the morning, right around the time that you wake up. And you should take a little piece of Torah and you should say it at night, right around the time you go to sleep. And that becomes the laws of Kriyat Shema. But if you come along and say, I did the right thing because I said Shema by that morning time, and I did the wrong thing because I missed the morning, and I did the right thing because I remembered to say Mariv, and I did the wrong thing because I fell asleep before Mariv, you'd be missing out on a whole world of meaning, the meaning of the God of life, this whole life and connection and love that you get from Torah, which is actualized in the world of good and evil through the laws. And I think, you know, what you're doing by creating these journeys into the meaning of these mitzvahs is you're helping people touch not just the world of halacha, the world of right and wrong, you're helping people understand that meaning behind the right and wrong in deeper and deeper ways through a journey, and the journey connects them with the God of life. And what you're shouting from the rooftops, what I think you're really shouting from the rooftops, is I feel so energized in my connection with God and my connection to his book and my connection to his laws through this journey that I'm taking in meaning. Can I share some of that with you? And I think when I was trying to do that with my nephews, if you ask me what I wanted out of that thing, I didn't want them just that they could write an essay that's more meaningful about Rosh Hashanah. I wanted to see the light in their eyes. I wanted to see them relate to this holiday and relate to God in a way that was ever so slightly different with greater love, passion, and awe. That's, I think, the real payoff here. I think that that whole approach, I really appreciate it. Just the notion that you can approach Judaism and Torah from the perspective of good and evil, and you'll get a lot of law and you'll get a lot of obligation. If you take it too far, though, you, you'll probably get a lot of conflict because you'll be telling other people what the right and the wrong is. And there's this whole other element, the Torah of Chaim. Yeah, that to me has been something that I've sort of had to mature and accept that, you know, there there is a tension on the one hand between the very basic keeping of mitzvot because you do, because you keep them, because this is what God told you to do versus this whole other dimension of meaning and beauty and relevance and journey and discovery and life. And, and you know, I think it's something that you've, you've taught me to do, which is we put it out there and we offer it to our audience, right? Like we're not dogmatic, we're not out to change anybody we're putting forward a presentation that means something to us and we hope that it means something to you. And, and that's it. it and it's, it's, I think it's not push it. Right? I think it's not simple that that's even an approach we take. Certainly in my life, there has been the temptation to take a much more aggressive stance. Um, and this feels a whole lot better and it feels like it reflects the depth and the meaning and the beauty of the methodology itself. So thank you for that.
I do have another question at the tip of my tongue that I want to ask, which is, you know, you talked about this beautiful way of seeing Rosh Hashanah. And we talk about, you know, the meaning of Nida, and we talk about the meaning of Shabbos and Kashras. And, and the question is, why isn't that out there in my experience of Judaism? Why is that not what I see in, in my shul? Why is that not what's taught in school? It's very, I'll say this word, threatening to not see these meanings that we're arriving at reflected in our day-to-day -day practice. What's your approach to that? Are we getting it wrong? Are they getting it wrong? Leave the wrong behind? First of all, I don't want to use a, a generic they. That feels a little bit uncomfortable to me. I'll give you two examples, maybe that'll ground it. One is Rosh Hashanah, right? And the Day of Judgment. Uh, it's just a very, very different thing than... Here, what I'm referring to is Rabbi Foreman's course on Rosh Hashanah that completely changed the way that I relate to the holiday. He argues that we're so used to thinking of Rosh Hashanah as this scary day where we're quaking in our boots, terrified of God judging us for our sins. But... You look at the biblical text, actually, it's supposed to be a really joyful day. That's essentially about remembering and celebrating Sinai. Anyway, I'm not going to go into the whole argument here. You'll be able to follow the rest of our conversation without it. But I put a link to the course in the show notes in case you want to check it out. I really recommend it. Right? Rosh Hashanah as a day of remembering Sinai is really different than... Yeah, look, so I, I will grant you that there are misconceptions that are broadly out there in, uh, in even, uh, you know, straight up Orthodox Judaism and people who have been in the yeshiva for ages are subject to some very unfortunate misconceptions. And it would be nice if some minds were changed by listening to a podcast like this, but it doesn't have to be a podcast like this, listening to any, li literally opening your machzer and reading it instead of just listening to what I learned in fifth grade that was a little bit off base, right? Like, for example, Emu, for all of those people who are plagued by this notion that Rosh Hashanah is supposed to be guilt day, and I'm supposed to be trying to do tshuva all day long and trying to repent for my sins, because how am I going to face God? Look how little support you get in the machzer for that, right? Like, how I'm many? very worried about you opening this this line because I'll point you straight to Unatana Tokyo. Yes. The scariest prayer of the day. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I remember Art Scroll in their advertisements for Rosh Hashanah, the Machzer was open specifically to that page. You know why it was open specifically to that page when the Machzer has 1,200 pages in it? Because it's the only page that they could use in 1,200 pages to come up with some sort of fearful understanding of Rosh Hashanah. Literally the only page, right? Because every other page doesn't support it. And historically, how old is Nutanatoka? It's the newest thing in the Machser, the most newfangled thing in the Machser. The part where we started probably to get it wrong. You, I mean, like, I hate to say that, but it, it's actually new. It's like almost like a break with tradition because you don't find this quest for tshuva and this quaking fear earlier on in, in the Machser. You don't find people saying, Ashamnu, Bagadnu, and Vidui. You don't find people say, that's just not what you find. You find the theme of the kingdom of God, of coronating a king. And so, you know, I remember as a kid in in high school, my mind was changed about Rosh Hashanah because I learned it the same way everybody else learned it, and I was all fearful, and I was all... And I remember that I had this chabura with Rabbi Ezra Neuberger, who's currently the Rosh Kollel of Ne'er Israel Rabbinical College. And back then, he was a single guy who was pretty wise. And 
he used to give us a Chabura at 11 o'clock on Thursday nights. And I remember the very first Chabura was like, okay, boys and girls, we're going to talk about Rosh Hashanah today. And my mind was blown. It was like, this is not guilt day. This is not, you know, it, this is not even Shuva day. It's, it's coronation day. And if you take your eye off that ball, you've literally missed everything that Rosh Hashanah is talking about. Now, I think what with the work we did in 2017 deepens that idea of coronation day yeah. and takes it back to its roots in Sinai. So it's almost like putting glasses and helping that vision. It also, you know, it, it bridged the gap yeah. between it, we even sort of justify Judgment Day, right? Yes. And we talked about how judgment um, lines up with a very joyful day, as described in Nehemiah, um, uh, which which I really appreciate, right? That you're you're not dismissive at all of not just Chazal but also Jewish practice. You do as much as as possible um, try to bridge the gap, but not in an apologetic way, right? You sort of, um, and I really appreciate that about you is that, is that you're actually trying to read things most honestly without an agenda, not one way and not the other way. And then you're, you're delighted to discover that, you know, Chazal and our tradition oftentimes were seeing those things, um, as, as connected. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, a personal, you know, a full disclosure, the, one of the things I have a hard time with is Natanatokev, but you have to understand historically how new that is. It's not Chazal, it's not the Medrash, it's not even a Risha, it's, it's an unknown piyut, of, uh, probably from the times of the Crusades. And in all fairness, if I was living through Rosh Hashanah in the times of the Crusades, I probably would have seen it like Natanatokev too. I mean, you're living in a time when horsemen are coming from town to town, ripping babies out of the arms of their mothers and killing them, you know, in the name of a different religion and setting synagogues on fire with people in them and wondering if you're next. And in that kind of world, sure, I would be quaking in fear. And if I'm in the high holidays and hearing the the, the, the pitter-patter of horsemen on the on the cobblestone streets, I too would give some sort of expression to that fear in the poetry that I choose to compose on that day. And so I can't be so smug in 2023 and look back on that and say, you know, uh, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Can I give you, can I give you a different example? Let's, let's maybe talk about milk and meat for a second. Sure. Like, um, general, some of the approaches we, we take here on, on Kashras is that Kashras really is about being sensitive to the animal world and to understanding the source of your food. But much of our practice is purely legal and very little of it is about values. What would you say there about like this meaning behind Kashras not quite matching the experience of Kashras, which is, you know, certifying various restaurants and grocery stores so that I can buy you know, so I think meat. to some extent you're talking about the difference between the world of the God of life and the world of the God of good and evil. And both are true, right? In other words, you can't have a beef with the idea of halacha. The idea of halacha is not going to be a meaning-filled kind of world. What halacha tries to do is to take ideas that are meaningful and give people in the mundane aspects of their life a way of touching that through the mundane. The notion of the mundane is to some extent in tension with the notion of meaning. If you lived your entire life with meaning, your brain would explode. You, your brain forces you to routinize your day. 
You have to. The amount of decisions which you actually make every day versus the amount of actions which you go through, right, is literally a ratio of 99 to 1. You do 99 actions for every real decision you make. How much did you really choose what you were going to eat this morning, what you were going to put on this morning, whether you were going to brush your teeth at night, how you were going to brush your teeth? Are you going to start on the left side of your mouth or the right side of your mouth? Are you going to have strokes going up and down or not? Routinization is the name of the day. Habits are the name of the day. And halacha deals with the world of habit right? But habits can be your friend because you can choose your habits. And in choosing your habits, you choose the kind of person you become because we are creatures of habit. And when you do something day after day after day, it since we are bodily people, it ingrains in our bodies, the ground of our being, something that 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 does change us. So would you say that Judaism or Orthodox Judaism is in a position where we could pay more attention to uh the spirituality and the meaning, because we do pay a fair amount of attention to, to, the, to the law. And I'm not, you know, as you said, I'm not discounting that, but it, it does sort of feel like, in certainly in our education. Let me put it to you this way. The concept of brachot, right? A bracha is an amazing spiritual thing. So how do you relate to a bracha? I think most of us mumble a bracha. We say shakonia bidvara. We don't really give it a lot of thought. But in some way, our lives are different because we mumble those words before we pop food in our mouth. And the notion of popping food in our mouth without mumbling those words is anathema to us. And it's good that it's anathema to us because it means that there is some level in the mundane aspects of our life that we rebel against the notion that food is just there. It's not just there. Now, what, what could I do with a bracha? You could meditate on a bracha and your mind would explode. You can meditate on this idea, shahakol nihiyeh bidvaro, that everything that exists literally exists through God's world. Not even that God created everything actively, but the living God is such a powerful force that actually all that comes to be, all that is, is a dynamic process of his word that exists in the world, that every string and string theory that binds together the muons and that make up the neutrons and the electrons and the atoms, that it's all just resonances of God's word, and that that is all shahakolnia bidvaro, and that strawberry that you're eating, something that is literally a vibrating music piece of God's word that you're taking into your mouth, all of that is true and beautiful. And yet, if I tried to think about that every time that I ate a strawberry, I would starve because it would take me too long to eat. <laughs> My body wouldn't have the nutrition, and life forces me into a routinization. And therefore, there is a kind of yin and yang, I think, between meaning and practice. I feel bad. Here I am. I created a whole piece on Shema, which one of these days I hope to to produce an Aleph Beta. When I came up with that, my brain was exploding with the meaning of Shema. I couldn't, it took me 45 minutes sometimes to say Shema. I couldn't, it changed my life. I walked around a different human being. Now, I hate to tell you, but I like still say Shema kind of quickly. And if you actually ask me and say, Foreman, you came up with this amazing thing. It must take you forever to dive in the morning. It's like, I don't know. It's like occasionally I think back on it, right? But like in my actual practice, I don't so much. So are you a failure? You came to this incredible meaning. Where is it in your life? I touch it. I, I touch it. Every once in a while during the day, I come back. You know that Shema that you said earlier today? 
It really is about this oneness idea, about taking this idea of love and merging it with this idea of justice. Do you understand how powerful that is? And then my mind gets there. And so it's enough for me to just touch it, but I can't have it forefront in my mind or my brain would explode all the time. I can't live that way. It's true in Aleph Beta. I like it exhausts me. I like sometimes I need to be careful when I enter into a research session because like I'll come out three hours later breathless. I'll be like panting for breath. It's like I can't I need a rest. The the type of things that I feel that I've seen and I'm spiritually invigorated and I can travel. There have been, been many, many times where I've come home either exhausted or I'll be going to sleep. I'll wake up in the middle of the night and be like, like something will have clicked. I'll be like, oh my God. Or, or I'll just be mulling this, yeah. suck him over and over again, like mumbling right. So <laughs> isn't there a part of you, Emu, that when I say to you, Emu, I, I wonder if you have some time. I have this new insight I want to delve into with you. Isn't there a part, and you could be honest, where it's like, oh, that sounds really fascinating for me. I'd really love to do that. But I don't know if I have enough spiritual energy. I think that's going to be draining. I've got a lot in my life. Like, Maybe we can push that to next week. I think I could find some time in my calendar next week. Because as exciting as it is, it's an absorbing experience, right? That's the world you're touching in in Meaningful Judaism. You're playing in that sandbox, and you have to understand the power of that sandbox. It's a pretty powerful sandbox, and its counterpoint is the routinization of halacha, which tries to touch some of that and take some of that into daily life, but it looks different in daily life. I think that was that was a really beautiful. Um, I, that whole approach is, is gorgeous, and and I hate. I don't even think I'm disagreeing, but like I I I, can't, I wouldn't be emu if I didn't <laughs> say after my rebbe just very eloquently said what he said that I think we could use more meaning and spirituality <laughs> in our Judaism today. I do. I don't think I don't think that our educational systems are are necessarily the way they are purely to shield us from mind explosion syndrome. I think we could use a few I'll more. buy that as well, right? It only works if there's a yin and a yang. If there's only a yang and no yang, right? If we haven't even helped people understand that there could be, you know, I had a daughter of mine who wanted me to um, speak at her seminary. And at her seminary, the girls going to Ivy League schools and and trying to get like the very best and the highest forms of learning they could possibly do. And they naturally gravitate towards, uh, you know, what if you if you think what are the most advanced forms of learning I can do in Judaism? So I want to learn Talmud. I want to try to learn it with the most sophisticated approach with the Achronim and the Rishonim because. You know, that's what it is in our Jewish, that's what we think really, really sophisticated Torah learning was. And she said, Abba, can you just come and just, just speak once, just do one of your Tanakh things with them? And I said, what's your goal? She says, I just want them to see that there is a whole sophisticated world within Tanakh that they just aren't aware of. And I did, and it changed her friend's way of seeing things, and it was really meaningful to her. It gave them another vision of what it could be. And I think if we could just do that, if if we could just help people understand, you know, there's a real world of meaning here. Let me show it to you once. I remember, by the way, one of the things that turned me on to the approach, which eventually became the methodology that Aleph Beta is based upon, was 
a talk given by my English principal in high school, Peter Ablo. And I listened to a talk that he gave on the story of Yehud and Tamar. And he had this mind-blowing insight where he took a Rashi that was seemingly meaningless and strange, and he just showed the connection between what Rashi was saying and this vast idea world of Pshat, and it began to open my mind up to the world of possibilities in Yehud and Tamar. Later, I would go back to Yehud and Tamar and became one of the first stories that I really built out. And I remember thinking like, you know, if there's this kind of mind-blowing meaning in that one story, it's got to be yes. everywhere. Yes. We're just not seeing it. Yeah. It's got to be everywhere. And that alone changed my whole view of yeah. this book. It's like, oh my God. I just got the chills because I'm surprised you had that moment because I had that moment after listening to your piece on Abraham's journey. It's exactly that feeling of like, if there's so much richness and meaning in this story, that means this whole book has so much richness and beauty and so much to tell yeah. us. Yeah. And that was mind blowing. And if we could do that for kids, just that, show them one piece, one mitzvah, that the roots are deep here and their minds are blown, then that changes their relationship to the world of halacha in a way that is, I think, really powerful and lasting. I'd love to see that. Harry Foreman, thank you so much for having this conversation with me, but more, more than anything, for being this incredible force in my life who's infused my Judaism with tremendous meaning. And that was never even your intention. Like you, you really weren't the Kirov rabbi who wanted to put his arm around my shoulder and bring me in and change. No, you were just delighted with this book and enthusiastic to share it with anyone who listens. And then what emerges from it is this tremendous meaning. And it's changed my relationship with Torah, changed my relationship with mitzvos, and changed all of my relationships subsequently in life in general. So thank you. And thank you, Emu, for creating this podcast and dedicating yourself to what I see as a chance to begin to actualize that feeling that you want to shout it from the rooftops. This is a shout it from the rooftops podcast uh, where we get a chance to share some of that enthusiasm and love that's in our hearts for this book and its laws and the connection that we can get to the living God through those laws. I hope that the same way that this has resonated in your heart, it begins to resonate in the hearts of many of your listeners. This episode was recorded by Rabbi David Foreman and Imu Shalev, the senior editor was Beth Lesh. Our audio editor is me, Hilary Gutman. Our production manager is Adina Blaustein. Meaningful Judaism's editorial director is Imu Shalev. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.